today I have something that I'm excited and happy about. Is it that I'm back? <laughs> well, sorry, there are two things I'm excited and happy about. <laughs> You're back. Hello. Welcome Hello. back. How, how was it? I think I remember what I did. Oh, I went away for a long weekend. Nice. With, with your lady friend. Yeah, it was meant to be the weekend I proposed, but... You couldn't wait. I couldn't wait, so I did like three weeks before that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you get to enjoy it twice. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty nice. Much. So yeah, everyone can stop sending in all the like panicked emails about, where was Ben? Show wasn't the same. There were none, were there? No, there weren't. Oh. I've, I've got I several can, right here. I can yes. send one if, if that makes, makes yeah. any difference. Yeah, it does. And yeah. Cool. Thanks. So that's one of the things I'm excited and happy about. The other is iBeacons. We know this because last week he was ridiculously excited to talk about them and wanted to talk about them at the very end no, of the show. I remember. I listened. Yeah. And uh, and you cut me off. And you I, shut me down. I, I wouldn't let you because we were already over time. But this, I've been sitting on iBeacons because, uh, you know, non-disclosure agreements, I kind of respect them. Didn't Why? Want, didn't want to talk about it until it was time. Now it's time. No, but I, there, everybody here respects respects. That's good. Non-disclosure agreements. Sometimes we have been a we little just, loose in the past. <laughs> we just <laughs> we, we we do it yeah loosely and with you know very little. See, my respect is tight. <laughs> That's probably a good strategy for life. <laughs> um, yeah. But now it's uh, it's lifted, right? Where iOS 7 is in the hands of the world and uh, we can talk about iBeacons. Cool. Which um, actually appeared on one of the slides in the keynote, mm-hmm. on one of the slides. You know that slide that they do every year? It's not just in WWDC. Yeah, 200 it's- new features. Yeah, exactly. And that then- was our reasoning for all the breaks we had. Because they were all there. Because it said new features. So yeah. that's like we can talk about, about all the all new of features. Them. All of the yeah. ones I mentioned, including the... In intricate details of yeah. their actual implementation. I think that they're one of the coolest features of iOS 7. I don't know. Have you guys looked at them much? Yes. Well, you showed me. So Apple announced these as part of WWDC as a new feature in iOS 7. Uh, they've proposed to change to the Bluetooth low energy standard series of protocols, series of standards suite of standards um, to allow Bluetooth low energy devices to become beacons. And by a beacon, they mean a thing that can broadcast its identity to the world, to any devices that might be interested. And uh, and your phone or iPad or iOS device can be one such interested device. Um, so basically, it, it is a extension to call location which is kind of interesting um, because it's a little bit about location. It's about your proximity to something. But up until now, core location has been about your location in space, you know, your latitude and longitude, where you are. And now um, Apple have added this idea, uh, this concept to core location where you can um, get information about your proximity to a one or more of these iBeacons little Bluetooth low-energy devices that are broadcasting their identity to the world. Um, and to me, this has got so many so many interesting applications. Um, I've been, as soon as I saw it in WW, mentioned in WWDC, I started playing with it. Uh, I've got myself quite a number of um, prototype beacons to play with um, and I've started building some apps around it because I think it's kind of cool. It's very cool. So you say it's got heaps of potential. What potential might that be, Jake? Well, 
anything, can just any time you could think of an app that could benefit from knowing your proximity to something else. So what, what's something that you're planning on using it for? Okay. Um, so one of the examples I'm working on at the moment is uh, a um, audio tour app. So for a, uh, an, a building that the public like to walk around. Uh, like a gallery or something. Something like that, mm-hmm. yep. Um, where there might be interesting content that's relevant to different parts of the building. And as you move through the building, uh, your app can detect its proximity to different beacons located in the building and tell you things that are relevant to the part of the building you're in. Right. So I've seen something like this before. Well, I haven't seen it. I guess it's kind of invisible. But when, <laughs> <laughs> but when we were at one more thing, right, there was the, the talk from... Um, Mona? Right. Yeah, so about Mo- the, the stuff at Mona where they do, uh, they do something very similar where you're being tracked, your, your position is being tracked using Wi-Fi, I believe it is. Indeed, yep. Uh, and they show you uh, the items that you are currently nearby. Yeah, so that app I think was developed by Art Processors. Yes, yes, that and sounds. sounds the Mona is the Museum of New Art in Hobart, in Tasmania, indeed, Australia, and it's pretty awesome. It's this gallery that um, some really rich dude just decided to build. He's made rich. His, I, I think you should add the word eccentric in there because he's, eccentric, he's, rich he's pretty, dude, pretty eccentric. He's made his fortune by gambling, really by writing software to predict winners in sporting events and betting big on those predictions. I think maybe maybe this is just part of the mystique, the myth that's built up around this dude. Anyway, and then he used his fortune to build this cool new modern art gallery. Uh, and one of the main premises of the gallery is that there are no um, like of those standard sort of information panels you'd normally have next to artworks. It's right. just the, the art. placards. Yeah, just the artwork sitting in the gallery and that's it. And the only way you've got to find out about what works there are is they give you an iOS device when you walk in the door. Uh, and it tracks your location as you move through the building and tells you what works you're near. And that does use Wi-Fi. Um, and that's cool. It, yeah. It's it's like it's really awesome. But the thing that um that that excites me about iBeacons, um, kind of in contrast to that technology, is that um that technology is really expensive. Like my understanding of how it works is that they use um kind of like a mesh of Wi-Fi routers. Something like that, yeah. And the routers all know about the um, radio signal strength they're they're getting from the devices they're communicating with, um, and the software running on the network aggregates that signal strength from all of the routers on the network and kind of triangulates. And so that's awesome technology because it lets you know the location of all of the devices in the building. Yeah, that's kind very of, very cool. I think something that's really important to note there as well. I think I believe they have additional. Uh, hardware on the devices themselves, which is why you can't just take your phone in uh, to use right. while, when you're there. They actually hand you an iPod Touch that's in a special case that has additional hardware. Yeah, okay. That's interesting. So I think there is um, network technology. I believe Cisco have a kind of network product available to organizations that um, get a bunch of Cisco routers, Wi-Fi routers, to do indoor positioning using yep. their technology. But it's you know it's we're talking millions of dollars of software fees and things. Whereas iBeacons um, offer a similar promise, which is um, they can let you know when you're near to something that's interesting and give you relevant information, um, but are vastly simpler. So you're talking about a little Bluetooth low energy device, which, you know, uh, product sort of prototype devices 
in the order of twenty dollars. Um, I imagine once they're in production, they might be as cheap as five dollars, a couple of dollars for a little Bluetooth low energy device. Um, and instead of trying to locate you precisely in space, um, it simplifies the problem by just saying, well, you don't, for so many applications, you don't actually need to know exactly where you are. You just need to know how close you are to some other thing. Right. And so, yeah, that's what I think is, is really cool. And, and in terms of other applications, like Apple mentioned a couple in their WWDC session. So we'll put a link to the session in the show notes. Okay. Um, and the two ideas I think they mentioned was one for a donut shop, like retail. So the idea, um, you might have a loyalty card app for, say, a coffee shop or a donut shop, um, and that shop could have a beacon in each of their outlets. And as your device gets close to the beacon, it could display a message on your lock screen, uh, prompting you to unlock your loyalty card app so that you don't have to dig around and find which app it is. Um, right. Things like that. Um, Apple are also using it in Apple TV. Oh, he stole my story. Oh, do you want to tell us about that, Ben? Well, not really. I want you to. Okay. So Apple are using it to sort of fake near field communication. Yeah. That's what NFC stands for, right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if you've seen the latest Apple TV update, when you set it up for the first time, it asks you to tap your iPhone so on your Apple I, TV. I've heard about this, but haven't actually seen it yet. because I'm I haven't not- actually seen it yet either. I haven't seen it yet. And I've updated. I'm, I'm, I'm all but yours is already set up. So this is right. when you get a brand yeah, new so, Apple TV. So if you have a new Apple TV with the new firmware on it, yep, that's not in like updating from an existing configuration. Yep. So you reset it. Um, I, yeah, believe it prompts you to say um, if you want to pair a phone to use as a remote. Yeah, that's right. And you tap, oh, you tap your phone. I like it. And there was some debate originally. People thought it was using some fancy Wi-Fi. It's not. It's officially using Bluetooth. So iBeacons. So whoever told me that was wrong. <laughs> and so part of the the iBeacon API is basically, as I say, it lets you. It's a it's a modification to um, core location. So it's actually I'm looking at some code here I wrote to, to in one of these apps I'm working on, and it's it's really straightforward. So basically, uh, core location manager or CL location manager, um, is the class you've always used to register for notification of um to do with locations. So uh, you can set up geofences and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's now a new API for location manager. There's a couple of them. Uh, one of which is start ranging beacon in region. Um, so there's a, a new API called a core location beacon region. Um, and so basically you can create a core location beacon region for each of your beacons. Ask your lo- location manager to start ranging for beacons in that beacon region. Um, and then you'll get a callback whenever your uh, device has uh, got become within range of those beacons and, and not just um, entered to the range of the beacon, but whilst you're within the range of the beacon, it continues ranging. So you get continual callbacks letting you know the um, basically the proximity. So it uses the received signal strength of the radio signal as a proxy for your distance from the beacon. Um, and it kind of does some simplification of that for you. So rather than having to translate the signal strength yourself, um, you can just ask uh, for your proximity. And I believe there's kind of three levels. There's your very close, near or far. And I think close is like almost touching, like maybe the Apple TV, tap your phone to the beacon and you're close. And um Near and far, as far as like uh, the beacons just 
in range, in range maybe 30 meters or so, and near is like within five meters or so. Um, yeah, and it's kind of cool. The the other thing that is is pretty cool about um, about this, and I think it's core location generally, is that um, your app is not constantly talking to the Bluetooth low energy device. Um, the operating system is contacting Bluetooth low energy devices on behalf of all apps all the time. So rather than if if you've got lots of apps on your phone that are all interested in beacons, um, the app doesn't need to be running. Um, the operating system has a single process that uh, that um, keeps track of Bluetooth low energy devices that it encounters. Um, and if it encounters when it encounters a Bluetooth low energy device, it sees this, whether or not that device has an iBeacon identifier. And if it does, it looks through its list of iBeacon identifiers that apps have registered their interest in. And if there are any apps on the device that are interested in the beacon it's just encountered, uh, it'll launch that app into the background and give you an opportunity to do something. So you get a callback method. Um, you could, you know, for example, display a message on the lock screen or do whatever you like. Um so it's kind take of cool. over the world. Yeah, not necessarily take it. So, I mean, the example, as I said, the one that I'm working on is um, this audio tour. And one of the things I really like about it is, uh, I don't know if you've ever visited sort of galleries or museums or historical sites with um, that have apps or content on your iPhone. No, actually. There you go. I, I have a few times and also – old school hardware yeah oh, yes audio tours and things like that i sometimes find you can end up paying end up paying more attention to the device you're carrying around in your hand than you are to the kind of physical place you're experiencing so you've kind of gone to this awesome gallery or historical site and instead of actually looking at the things in front of you you spend the whole time looking at your phone because they've got some cool app on it um i really like the idea of beacons as like it can you can leave your device in your pocket, for example, with an audio tour and just have a headphone in and your device can just keep track itself as you move through the building when there's new content. So you don't have to worry about like looking for that little symbol that says, oh, there's an audio thing and then pulling your device out of your pocket and finding which which audio track describes the, the thing you're looking at. Very cool. There's been a lot of chat on Twitter about iBeacons. Everyone thinks they're the future. I'm, I'm a bit worried that that the main excitement is coming from retail opportunities. Right. And um, whilst I can understand that, it kind of – I'd worry that if this technology just becomes a way of spamming people about discounts that are available as you're walking past a shop. People will just turn it off. Yeah, exactly. And I'm also worried that people might be fearful that their device is chewing through battery by ranging for beacons all the time. Um, and I don't think that's an issue at all. I think Bluetooth low energy is, as in its name, incredibly low energy. Um, and the devices are actually already, uh, whenever you know, you've know you got Bluetooth turned on on your phone, even if you're not paired with a particular Bluetooth device, as you walk around through the world, the Bluetooth uh, circuitry in your phone is already communicating um, with nearby devices to uh, basically retrieve this ad. Advertisement data? Advertisement data? Advertisement data. <laughs> I'm looking at the arbiter of all things pronunciation. I don't actually know. Ad, I don't, I don't ad, use the word advertisement at all. Data. Ad data. Anyway, you get the idea. I'd say advertisement. Yep. And so it's the way in which Bluetooth low energy devices can let 
other devices know about their presence and their capabilities and and what they are. Um, and it's it is it is an incredibly efficient protocol. It's incredibly low energy, and Apple's iBeacon is just piggybacking on this. It's just adding another identifier to that advertisement packet, uh, and your device is receiving them all the time and processing them. And all it does is basically say, uh, is the identifier in this one of the ones uh, any app on this phone is interested in? Yes, no. If yes, give that app a chance to do something. Yeah. So basically, it's not it's not uh, iBeacons isn't doing anything particularly difficult on your phone it's um it's just doing what it's always done it's not it's not yeah, causing exactly. anything to anything else except for the fact that if you have a lot of apps that run iBeacons and you're walking past them all the time then perhaps that might cause start causing you issues right those apps would get launched in if the background always, if you're whenever. always having apps launched into the background of course your battery's going to run down yeah um, but they're only given a chance to run for like 10 seconds or something yeah um, so but i, I mean um and Kind of in in response to what you were saying before about retail stuff, like it's not like there's going to be, like, it's not like there's going to be a lot of uh, the those sort of apps where, I mean, there might be a lot of apps, but not a lot of people are going to necessarily install them where they're you know they're constantly ber- berating you with um, right with advertisements. I'm pretty sure people end up deleting things if they're spam too spammy. Yeah, although and you people know- will blame the app before they blame the system. Because most people don't actually even know that the system exists. Yeah, that's probably true. You know what we are going to get? A whole pile of news articles about how our phones are tracking us and the NSA is watching because of iBeacons. Haven't we already got that? Well, they haven't caught on to iBeacons yet. This will be the next tool placed by the government. So there'll be iBeacons (laughs) everywhere. Yeah. Um, Not even by our government, by another government. (laughs) So the um, device will only, first of all, you have to download and install an app before the operating system will range for proximity to a beacon on behalf of that app. So the users have to have installed it. Secondly, they've got to agree to um, the location services. So before you can start ranging for beacons, the user will see a little you know, standard dialogue that says, uh, this app wants to know your location, yes or no. Mm-hmm. And if they say no, you don't so get that's And that's interesting because uh, a lot of... A lot of um, battery saving techniques that are going around the internet, especially with turn the off fiber, location services. One of the things is to turn off location services. Yeah. Um, and I know that my wife turns them off wholesale. She doesn't I think a lot of people, a, a lot of quite technically knowledgeable people, turn off Bluetooth as well as a way of saving energy. And certainly for old school Bluetooth, where you've got a pair for devices, you know, pre Bluetooth four or Bluetooth low energy. Yeah, I think it could drain the battery because Bluetooth the, is kind of uh, is. Um, Almost infamous for their for for huge battery drainage, mm. like it's basically a giant hole in the floor. Which could have been why they put low energy in the name of the new <laughs> standard to try and it's counteract possible. that. But I mean, the thing is, is that I mean that wasn't really. Uh, I mean, other than dub at uh, dub dub, I haven't really seen a lot of things saying about how low energy uh, Bluetooth is. It's it's usually just being um, announced as being Bluetooth four. Yeah. Wi-Fi is the real killer. That's what I find. Wi-Fi sucks through your battery. The real killer is is 3G, 4G. Oh, yeah, true. Especially okay. when you don't have 3G, 4G When it's nearby. on like one bar. Yep. Yeah, yeah, cause um, it's because it's running at full power to try it's and... Trying to trying to get the yeah. best signal it can. Um, just, well, before... I think, I think I'm almost ready to move on from iBeacons. What? Before we do... Um, a couple of other things. Um, people might be interested to know where you can get beacons. So Apple um, announced 
that they were proposing a change to the Bluetooth Low Energy Standard and that they would document it and and propose it be standardised so it could be implemented by whoever wants to make beacons and whoever wants to be able to find beacons. Um, they've yet to do that. So this could be an example. I really hope it's not, but it could be an example of FaceTime. Yeah, FaceTime was I, the same. iMessage, I think they did the same thing. No, I don't thing. think iMessage they ever did because oh. iMessage is encrypted. Okay. And they don't but think fa- they want to FaceTime. Well, I think FaceTime, they, they, yeah. said, they definitely said FaceTime they were going to open up as a standard. Look, I hope um, they do follow through with that in iBeacons because I think it's a cool enough technology that it needs to become pervasive. Sure. Um, but in the even without Apple having done that yet, there are already people uh, creating iBeacons. So I got mine from a company called Red Bear Lab. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Put a link in the show notes. Um, they've had a device for a while to, called a, a Bluetooth Low Energy Mini, a BLE Mini, um, and they just issued some updated firmware for the BLE Mini that would allow it to be used as an iBeacon. Um, there's a bunch of others. There's a company called Estimote that are doing um, kind of – already taking orders for kind of a more commercialized product productized version of iBeacons where you can order like a kit with 10 beacons and an SDK and stuff like that. Um, and just today, actually, I saw um, someone's reverse engineered the protocol and written uh, an Android library for ranging to beacons. Wow. Uh, so w- even without Apple having... um you know, documented it. Uh, people are reverse engineering it to create beacons and to create uh, frameworks for other platforms to to keep track of beacons. Um, let me just see. I made a note for myself for later. Uh, it is Radius Networks. There's a GitHub repo uh, where they've got an Android iBeacon service. Um, we'll throw links for all of those things in the show notes. Yeah. For people to look at. Cool. And finally, back just uh, one final um, discussion of potential uses, something that I think is really cool that Apple mentioned in WWDC, uh, is these beacons don't have to be fixed in space. So although it's part of core location, uh, n- nothing about a beacon actually tells you where it's located. You don't know where it is in space. All you know is your app's proximity to- How close you are to it. Yeah, how close yeah. you are to it. But- um. It might not be you who's moving. It might be the beacon who's moving. Uh, so Apple's another example was, for example, you could have imagine a bus network where all of the buses have got iBeacons on them and you've got an app and as you're standing at your bus stop waiting for your bus to arrive and you look down the road and there's a bus coming and you can't see whether it's your bus or not, uh, you could look at the screen of your phone and it would tell you the route number of the bus that's approaching you um, because right iBeacons. And it could be that in... Like it could go even a step further. And if they had a beacon in each of the buses and some sort of beacon client in each of the bus stops, doesn't necessarily have to be an iOS device. They could track the buses in that way without having to use like a GPS system. Yeah, exactly. Which well, I believe would be cheaper. Probably. Pretty cool. Yeah. And this is the this is the reason I'm excited about it, is I think that this is the continuation of the trend where technology is becoming more ubiquitous and more and more devices are becoming more and more intelligent. Well, not in the sense of self-aware, but having more kind of smarts built into them. Uh, You know, greater ability to wirelessly network with other devices 
to run custom code on devices. So Bluetooth Low Energy also allows you to write code that runs on, on the device itself. Um, so, you know, I, I'm just kind of imagining, seeing this as the start of a world where we've got basically little bits of code running in all of the devices in our environment um, and they start to become aware of the presence and proximity of other things and using, you know, I can just see all sorts of possibilities. That for has it. a name. Is it pervasive computing? Pervasive computing, ubiquitous computing. One of those. Both of those. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I think it's happening. It is happening. Ubiquitous sounds right to me, but then I might, might be, be the same I thing. might be somewhat biased from using core data all the time. Oh, because you've got ubiquitous uh, key value stores. Stop. Yeah. Ubiquitous, yeah. So that's me. My my iBeacon rant done for now. I'm sure I can find other things to talk about. I just want to point out that you've taken roughly a half hour. Good maybe work, maybe man. a little less. So I'm glad that I didn't let you talk on the last episode. Yeah, okay. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I do things for the sake of everybody. Uh, I appreciate it. I do, even though I'm a grumpy old man. <laughs> Indeed. So what's next? Dunno. Ben's got nothing. You mentioned Cordata. I did mention Cordata. We could talk about that. I believe you had questions for me in regards to Cordata because I've I've used Cordata twice now. And so I use it in progressions. So the entire progressions app is built around a Cordata database. Cordata Cordata store. Yeah. That that stores all the charts, all the favorites, all the everything has in in a in a data store, in a SQLite-backed system. And it has a whole number of things that go on behind it. I've also used it in Multiplex uh, for caching data. So um, the data, all the data in Multiplex is received from the website via an API, a RESTful API. And, uh, and it comes into the app uh, through a special class that I've set up and is immediately cached in core data. And uh, so nothing, everything deals with like the whole user interface and everything deals with the core data store um, through core data and not with the API at all. Hmm, cool. I mean, other than to yeah, make, tell it to update the data, but that's, that's neither here nor there really. Hmm. Core data is pretty cool. It is very cool. I'm, Until it goes it, wrong. It's like it's a, it's a love-hate relationship that I've had with it over the years because um, up until hang, – Hang on. Before we dive deeper, yep. which I want to do, yep. should, can we assume that all of our listeners know what core data is or should we give a brief I – think, I think it's fairly safe to assume that they know what it is. I mean – I, I still think it's worth addressing because I think it okay. can be mis – well, it's important to be aware of the different things it is so that you can decide – when you want to use it and when you don't. In the sense that a lot of people think of core data as a way of persisting stuff, which clearly right. it is. Yes. Uh, but it's not just a way of persisting stuff. I think, to me, the way I think of it is um, an, a utility for help helping you manage your object graph. So when your app is running, you have a graph of related objects in memory. Sure. And core data is a tool for helping you manage that. So the model part of your model view controller app um, generally, core data is involved with the model. It helps you um, create your model and and specify what sort of entities exist in your app, how they're related to one another. Um, it helps you manage those relationships both uh, on disk in terms of persisting them but also in memory uh, in terms of only keeping objects in memory when they're actually needed. Right. And it works with the view controller classes in UIKit 
and AppKit on the Mac um, so that those model objects are available when they need to be for the user interface, but only when they need to be. So things like fetched results controller for for table views um, is a way of sort of getting a, a table view to be backed by a core data store so that the objects are only loaded when they're needed. Um, and if you've got like relationships in your objects, so, you know, um, one object has a bunch of related other objects, um, some aspects of that relationship are, are visible. I think I need a concrete example. Say a person has lots of iPhones. <laughs> I can't I believe have, you didn't go with two. Teacher student touch. is the one they always use. Yeah. Okay, teacher student. Say or a teacher. Or employee employer. Yeah. yeah. Say a teacher has lots of iPhones. <laughs> That's not how it works, is it? Uh, say a teacher has lots of students, right? Yes. When you uh, get uh, the teacher object from your core data store, um, the student's relationship is there and you can do things like I think you can get the count. Um, yeah, yeah, you can. And, it's just a collection. It, right, but it hasn't actually uh, populated that with the data from the underlying database mm, no, until uses, such times as you traverse it. Yeah, so it's got placeholders called faults. Fault. Um, so all of that sort of stuff, the memory, kind of memory management, like um, keeping track of which of your objects have been folded into memory and which ones aren't and things like that, um, as well as persisting them to disk. Um, yeah, well, and I think I think like like I said, I use it in multiplex, and it's essentially for that exact purpose, right? Because none of the data that we're using in core data is is meant to be persisted forever. It's all it's all data about the comic, the strips, the books, the chapters, the stuff like that make up the the like the data, the main data in the in the app. Hmm. Um, I don't use it for things like uh, preferences or anything like that because that sort of stuff is better used elsewhere. Um, I use it for big like objects, things like you know, like like books and like books and chapters and and strips. Yeah, and at no like it does persist them, and it persists them for as long as it feels the need to. Um, but at no point does it rely on the fact that they're persisted. It it can just uh, repopulate everything. Yeah, cool. As it needs to. Um, Have you seen um, AF Incremental Store? I have. I haven't used it yet, and I did consider using it with with this, but decided not to for some reason. I can't remember why. Yeah, cool. But for for others, it's a. It sounds like it's the same idea. It's basically trying to say, um, abstract your client server interactions uh, away, so that from your app's perspective, you're just dealing with a core data store, right? Um, but that data might come from a network service. So what it does is, yeah, it basically turns any core data app into a, like, essentially a, like a Twitter client, really, because uh, in, I mean, not, not literally, like not every app (laughs) probably becomes becomes a Twitter Twitter client. client. (laughs) 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 Um, But uh, in, uh, what I mean is that uh, with a Twitter client, right, you, the only, the only dealings that you're doing are all going to, to a server. You don't, like, nothing Nothing is persisted in the app and only in the app. Everything is done uh, yeah. within, like, is done on the ser- dealt with on the server, except for the red unread status of your. Not anymore. Oh, good. That goes back to the server. Mm-hmm. Well, at ah. least in the official Twitter app, it does. Thank you. Um, thank you, Twitter, because that drove me nuts. Yeah, me too. So that everything goes back to the server, right? Um, and uh, with with core data, with it, with AF incremental store, it's essentially the same thing. It allows you to set up the same model that you've got uh, on in your core data backed app, 
uh, on your server and then basically through an API that you, you provide or uh, through an API that a service provides, I think Heroku, we've talked about this before. It is Heroku, yeah. I uh, have, a, have a system that, does, that works with AF Incremental Store to, to do exact, exactly what I'm saying. Um, you provide the data to your app and and back uh, as needed, and it just like it just basically turns uh, turns your app into a, mm. a, a like it turns the core data store into a cache more than anything, yeah. Yeah. which is pretty much what I'm doing with Multiplex, except I didn't use AF Incremental Store. Yeah, I cool. did use AF Networking though. So, what's the difference between AF Incremental Store and NS? AF Incremental Store is a subclass of NS Incremental Store. So, does NS do the online stuff? No. It doesn't. So what does it do? I, don't I, don't, know. I really don't know. Might, might be an abstract superclass. It it allows you to create uh create your own backings to uh the to the core data. So typically you have there's I think there's two or three. There's three on the Mac. There's um binary file. Yeah. And there's, there's XML. SQLite and XML. Ah, and yeah. there's one on iOS, which is SQLite. SQLite. So you, use, you typically most most apps will use SQLite because it's it's typically faster. Although I, I believe that some apps on Mac probably use the other ones as well. Um, but AF increment, sorry, NS Incremental Store allows you to create your own backing. So if you have a, if you want to use Core Data, but you also have, say, a a file type that you that you use um, for some reason, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Maybe like an encrypted store. Yeah, like you could create an encrypted store, or let's say you had. That's actually a really cool idea. Yeah, so it would allow you to, uh, you could write a backend to mm-hmm. Core Data, and then it would just, uh, you would it would just have all the same APIs that Core Data use, and you wouldn't have to change anything in your app, uh, except for you know the backing the backing part of it, uh, and it would ideally work exactly the same way. Um, but what if what if what AF networking has done with AF incremental store? Is uh, provide a backend that just talks to a um, talks to a server. Yeah, hmm, and, very um, cool. It is very cool. So it is very useful. I will. I will say. Yeah. I haven't used it myself yet either. And um, I think the main reason was I think it works best where you've got complete control over the server API, so you yeah. can write your expose your API on the server in a way that makes sense to core data. Yeah. Whereas if you're dealing with an existing server-side API, um, AF Incremental Store does let you kind of um, customize it so that you can then kind of consume that existing server-side API in a Cordata-esque way on the client. Um, but I think it gets more convoluted. Yeah, I think that's part of the reason why I didn't use it um, yeah. in Multiplex, to be honest, because Multiplex already had an app, already had a, had a backend. Yeah. So I think um, yeah, I think it works best where you're doing both simultaneously. Yeah. Um, what about other uh, other core data bits and pieces? So I've, I, one another one I use is um, Mo Generator. Yep, I use Me Mo Generator too. as well. It's brilliant. There you go. It's cool. So um, this I, I was using Mo Generator. I am an old man. Can I have I mentioned web objects? What? Yes, what are, actually. What are they? Actually, th- today, uh, today, uh, ATP was recording their their upcoming episode. I guess at this stage, I don't know if it'll release before or after this one does. Um, they were talking about web objects and how oh, really with with Apple services. It's funny. And Casey mentioned his joke that he, I believe, he used on this 
when he was on this show as well about how there's only like four people in the world. I was like, yeah. Jake's one of those. Oh, look at that. <laughs> <laughs> That's not quite fair either. There's more than four. Um, web objects is a cool technology. It still is. I use you know use that word consciously. It is a cool I thought technology. You were going to say I still use it. No, I haven't used it for a while. Oh, okay. Um, uh, the problem is uh, Apple acquired when Apple acquired Next way back when, uh, you know, pre Mac OS X and pre iOS. Um, one of the technologies they got from Next was Web Objects, as well as the Next Step operating system and Cocoa and all the rest of it. Uh, so Web Objects is basically Cocoa for the web. Um, and one of the biggest, coolest parts of it was the Enterprise Objects framework. Is the Enterprise Objects framework, which is kind of like the granddaddy of core data oh. um, i don't know where i'm going from this oh yeah mo generator so mo generator uh, was around in eof days and i used it there as well oh really yeah wow um and so what it does is uh it uses a pattern called the generation gap pattern and basically this is a design pattern that's commonly used where you've got computer generated code and you've got handcrafted code um, and basically it's a simple a really really simple idea is if you're generating your code automatically from like some model file in core data, for example, um, and then you customize it, put those customizations somewhere separate where they're not going to be clobbered when you regenerate your code. Right. And that somewhere separate is in a subclass. So the to explain, the uh, the core data setup, the, bait, the main core data setup, so if you go into the model builder and everything, you can actually generate your own classes from there. Uh, in there, it will generate whatever whatever classes you need for for your model. So let's say your model has three entities. It's probably got teachers, students, and phones. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and so it'll create all three of those. Um, and it would have like a one-to-many from teacher to student and a yeah, many-to-many so from teacher to phone and student to phone. And it would create all the code for that. But then the only way that you can – like then you would have to modify those files. So if you want to regenerate those files, they get blown away. Uh, all your changes and you have to mess around with it and go nuts. Mo Generator steps in kind of between that and allows you to do make the generated files uh, separate to the files that you edit so that you don't have to mess around with it when you change like, you know, you change a couple of properties on a on a model somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Uh, on a uh, entity yep. somewhere. Yep. And then you have to go through and update all your classes and deal with it and all that sort of stuff. I use it on both apps that I've, um, I ended up, Re rejigging progressions at one stage to to use it because I discovered it and I was like, oh my gosh, this is so good. Yeah, it is. It's really cool. So things like, for example, um, so the ones that the generated code get given an underscore prefix. So say in our example, uh, you have underscore teacher, uh, and then teacher, and in underscore teacher you get all the stuff that's been generated from your core data model. Um, like you might have a first name property and you might have a last name property, and then if you wanted to write a full name method that concatenates them together or a display name or something like that, you'd write it in the um, version of the class that didn't have the underscore prefix. And so that when you then, you know, added another property to your core data model later, it wouldn't clobber that. Um, but you also it also has a bunch of other cool stuff. Like um, I think this is still the case, that in both Enterprise Objects Framework and Core Data, um, your managed objects, I think that's a good generic term for the two, um, don't make sense outside of a context. So in Quadra, it's called an NS managed object context. Is that right? I'm remembering it's something correctly. along the lines yeah, of that. Right. Yeah, yeah. And an NS managed object uh, doesn't make any sense outside of a context. It's not really a valid thing. Mm-hmm. But you, the API would allow you to just alloc one 
and initialize it and then start setting properties on it without first registering it with a context, which wouldn't work and would make no sense. But the class is designed such that you can. Um, Mo generator, when it's generating the subclasses from your core data model for you, will generate like class methods to return an instance of a newly created instance of that class that's already been registered with a context that you give it. Yep. So it basically gives you like a convenience method for getting a new instance and registering it with a context in kind of one call as opposed to having to do that in two or three calls. Yeah. A few other convenience. It gives you um like because all your numbers say are as NS number. I'm pretty sure it gives you methods to get just the straight double instead of the NS number. Yeah, yeah it does. so you can get primitives. Set and get the primitives. And also it gives you keys predefined string const for your keys for all your properties. Yep, which yep. is great. So you don't so actually good. have to use magic string literals all throughout your code. You can use the – yeah, it's nice. It's really nice. Yeah. So at one point I started to investigate the idea of writing an Xcode plugin because back in Xcode 3, MoGenerator had a plugin called Mocked, Mocks, yeah, something I like that. used it. Uh, and it was awesome. Basically it would uh, keep track of whenever your core data file changed – it would automatically run the MoGenerator command line utility to re-generate um, your source. So it kept your source code and your model in sync without any thought at all. And unfortunately, that doesn't exist in Xcode 4 or 5. Um, so MoGenerator is a command line tool. Um, you run a command referencing your core data model and the templates you want to use for the generated code and tell it where you want to store the generated code and there are some other arguments you can pass and it will do that. Um, and so there's a little bit of hassle in keeping your core data model and your generated classes in sync. Um, I use a technique of, I think my latest version, I've created a aggregate build target yep. in my project. That's what I do. And um, just have some code set up to run the Mo generator script when I, when I build that target. So I just, when I need to make changes to my model, I change it and then I switch to my Mo generator target and run it and it, kicks off the command line tool for me there is a way of adding a post a run script build phase to a build phase run script yes yeah i think it's a build phase run script that's how i do it that, yeah there's another one where you look at particular file types is that the one that so you what use? i what i do is i uh, when i build um when i build my project at all so command b um it has like one of the very f- first things that it does is uh, there's a run script that looks for looks for the uh, the the model for the database. Uh, if it's changed, then it will then it will oh, that's cool. build the things. Yeah, that and that cool. way I never have to I don't have to have multiple aggregate targets and yeah, it's much cleaner. stuff like that. It's it's just I'm, I I just make my changes. I do Command B, and as long as my project has um you know is is all all good in code as far as. Uh, you know, it doesn't have any errors or anything like that. It, I don't have to do anything from there. Cool. So uh, any other core data utilities you guys have used? I haven't used it, but everyone uses Magic magic Record? Magical Record? Magical Record. Yeah, I've heard lots about it too, but also have not used it. It's meant to make it even easier, it. right? So it's uh, it's one of the one of the many, many things that's based off the idea of um, of Ruby. So because, I, and I mean, it exists, that sort of thing exists for almost all languages that I've ever dealt with. Um, it's essentially makes, adds convenience methods to, to things so that you can, you know, create objects and delete objects and 
deal with all of the objects without having to um without having like having to you know write hundreds of lines of code. Hmm. Maybe um, I should use so it. So you can find you can do things like find objects based on uh, based on predicates and stuff like that. Do you guys generally have some sort of data store singleton or and write those kind of methods? Yes, I, I generally have a like a data manager class yeah. or a data controller class or something. It? Yeah, I do tend to singleton. Yeah, it. me and too. With a view of trying to abstract as much as possible the underlying, even though it's core data. So I struggle with this a little bit because part of the idea of core data is that it's the core data framework and UI kit are written with some knowledge of each other. So things like NS fetch results controller. Kind of they break down that separation of your view controllers and mm-hmm. your underlying model layer. Um, so your your NS fetch results controller, which is really acting as the data source for your table view, uh, needs to know about things like predicates and like core data concepts. Um, so where I'm using that, it kind of doesn't make sense to have this data controller thing. Um, but where I'm writing other apps that are not using NS fetch results controller but interacting with objects that come from an underlying core data store. Sometimes I'll write just a yeah a kind of controller class that will do the core data stuff for me and just return yeah objects. So the calling code just knows that it's getting back, say, a teacher or a student, but it doesn't necessarily know that it came from a core data store. Because I like that. Not that I've ever done it, but I think the point is you should be able to switch out core data if something... Right, and switch and put something else in instead. And it should just sub in without changes to any views or... Yeah. And I kind of um, – so sometimes I use that approach and I, and I quite like it. But then other times I'm a bit more pragmatic and say, well, actually there are benefits to knowing that I'm using core data. Yeah, that's Because true. I know a little bit about the implementation details. Like, for example, um, you know, f- knowing what sort of thing is going to cause objects to fault. Oh, uh, yeah. Like, you know, if you abstract it away too much, then you could end up writing client code that's calling your data service in a really um, inefficient way. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas if you know a little bit – more about the implementation details, you can make sure you do things sensibly. Like um, what was I doing recently? An app I've got, it's got a collection view, which is not NS Fetch Results Controller, that uh, allows you to page through lots of items. Mm-hmm. Doesn't necessarily make sense to actually page through the number of items you can in this app, but it does anyway. Um, and I'm using core data for that, um, but I'm kind of explicitly saying... um when I'm implementing my collection view data source method to tell you how many items there are available, I'm making sure that I basically just do a count um, rather than actually fetch them. And when I page through, I'm using, um, you can say, you can set the offset and set the fetch limit of a fetch request. So you can say, create a fetch request, which would, would say, give you all the students in your class, but say, start at, at an offset of 10 and have a fetch limit of one. So you're actually only getting back one student at a time. Um, and so, yeah, I kind of like you end up, I think, needing in some cases some knowledge of that underlying where it's actually being stored rather than um, always being able to completely abstract it away. But I think NS fetch results controller is another good reason why you would use core data, especially in regards to a uh, table view. If you've got a table view listing of, of objects, which I've done in both apps, um, you can use NS fetch results controller to. I've never to liked do ex- it. Pretty much what Jake's doing, talking yeah, about exactly. I find no. it works so well in the exact case they thought of. And right. As soon as yes. you want to do something slightly different, 
It doesn't. You just got to delete all of that fetch results controller code and sit there and it is a lot re-implement more, everything. It is a lot more handy though to to create to make those table views because um, it gives you like look like they're working really nicely. Update because it, right or you, something. Well, yeah, it, it automatically will do, uh, add add and remove uh, rows from the from the table view. Yeah, if it's an editable table view and you want those yeah. edits to be persisted to your core data store, it's friggin' awesome because it'll do everything. It'll track newly created rows. It'll change the you position don't have of to rows. Call you reload don't. data. No, it yeah. keeps and yeah. it will do it all. It will do it all with with your know, nice slick animations if you set it up that way, um, so that you don't have like you don't have table views that just all of a sudden change when the data changes. Um, because otherwise you've got to write yeah, sort of you've new got to write rows, a whole lot new rows of code. fade in and old rows kind of move yeah. apart to make room for them and um, you can do but, that without fetch results controller. Oh, you can you do can. that. I'm not saying that you can't do it. It's just a lot easier with fetch results okay. controller. But I completely agree with you that as soon as you deviate from their one specific use case, it breaks down and it completely breaks that kind of separation. And and I've got no idea why Collection View doesn't use it. Like why didn't when Collection View came out, didn't Apple have rewrite in as fetch results controller to be, you know, a way of providing results to a collection view as well as a table view. Makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Actually, just before we finish, I, I'd like to I'd, I'd like to talk about um, getting data in and out of core data because I don't know if you guys have ever done that, but I did that for one of my apps um, prior to iCloud being any good at all. So you're saying like shipping an app with a pre-field store? No, 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 no. Um, no, so what I what I mean is is uh, I've I've used in progressions. If you ever open up progressions, which I'm gonna go with, nobody that listens to this show has ever opened up progressions. As a matter of fact, I have it right here. I have it. I think. Good, because I may have been lying a little bit. Lying, just a little bit. I do. I do. So if I have and there's no data in the in the app. If I have, um, I use it for like a backup and and restore functionality within the app. Um, because iCloud sucked. I don't know if it still sucks. Like, core, sorry, iCloud for core data sucked until very recently. Yeah, I've never. They claim not, they fixed it. They claim they fixed it. I haven't. I haven't tested it. So yeah, I, I haven't heard from anyone. I, one it, way as, or as far as I'm using concerned, it, that's why. everyone I'm stopped using it before yeah, they, they fixed burn. it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so because I tried using that and it, it it did not work. It was awful. But I I use it. Yeah, I use a class. I've got I've got a whole setup that basically taps in and and duplicates the the database um, when like on a user interaction to create like a copy of it for them to basically do whatever they want with um, and then they can also they can also bring that back into the app so it it copies all the data across. So that sounds way more advanced than what I've done with Core Data. I've never used it as a sort of document format, but I've kind of only ever used it as having a single data store for my app. I know you can you can actually have multiple stores and multiple contexts. Yeah, yeah, you can. And well, that's that's basically how I've done it. So it creates a secondary store, copies all the data from one store to the other. Um, I've got like a one like a two two method class that does that. So it just basically takes takes one store and a second store, and it just all it does is goes through all the ent- available entities. Goes through all the available um, objects of that entity, and then goes through all the available properties of that object, and uh, and then copies each individual thing across, and uh, does it within like ten seconds. It's pretty if cool. That. 
um, and I use that to basically make it make it so that I can uh, remove data from an app uh, and switch like data out if I want to. It's excellent for testing, mm. very excellent mm. for testing, um, and I do ship it with that so people can you know back up their data and keep their data on on hand. Nice and send their data to other people. I've used it several times with progressions to just go, okay, you want me to pre-populate your, your copy of progressions with all the stuff that I have? Sure, here's my file. And they can just import it, and it's just got everything exactly the same way that I've got it set up. Yeah, that's pretty all cool. All the way down to, like, you know, font sizes and everything, because yeah. I use that in progressions for everything. Yeah, cool. But, there, yeah, there are ways... Cordata has a lot of flexibility for pulling things in and out of it as well, and not just mm. using it for everyday stuff. But I'm probably going to rewrite all that code soon. So I'm going to be rewriting and rewriting progressions using all the new iOS seven stuff. iOS yeah, seven only. I'm, I'm moving to iOS seven only with it because I've kept it. At, I've kept it with supporting five for ages. Because yeah, I, I think the next step I'm going to do. I'm going to do iOS seven only. But I think I think actually the one of the most recent changes which we haven't talked about before is um, the whole thing with Apple. When you, if you have a device that's got an old, uh, old version on it, so let's say you're using iOS five or iOS six, and um, somebody releases an app, like let's say Facebook ups, updates their app so it only supports iOS seven, um, then what it will do now is it will download the an older version of the app that does support whatever version you're using. Right, if you've elected, yeah. to keep that old version available. That's kind of right. kind of cool that you can now basically have versions. Can you update the older version? No, not from what I know. So you can't. You can't can you kind roll of have- back? That would be amazing. Have you guys ever shipped a like horrible bug and just wanted to click roll back? Yes. You can't. There's no, no roll back. I know. You can't. You can't roll. You back. can only roll forward. <laughs> just keep going. Painfully. Crash forward. Keep moving forward. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and it won't even let you up, like uh, do an update with an older version that has an older version number. I think yeah. it, it requires that the version number has gotten higher. And then you got to wait for that update to be reviewed. Yeah. While your bug lives. Well, you could probably, that's probably an instance where you could use an expedited request. Probably. I think Theori- that's, that's, theoretically. What that's what they're th- theoretically for. So long as you haven't used them it- as a matter of course, every time you submit an app, <laughs> because then they stop listening Boy, to you. Right, Wolf. <laughs> uh, it, it, you the allegedly, way the way you're speaking is uh, it, it suggests that you've you've do- had this happen to you. I know nothing, <laughs> and at that, I think I might have to. Yeah, I think we're. Leave I think that's today. about time to end. All right, so guys, if you want to read any of the stuff that we've put together for you, you can do that. Uh, you just need to go to. Uh, mobilecouch.co forward slash 19. 19? 19. Uh, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can jump on our website and you can uh, you can send us an email through through our little web form that we have and that's at mobilecouch.co forward slash contact. Uh, you can also get in touch with us individually because sometimes you might want to do that. I'd love to talk to anyone about web objects just because, you know. I think you're going to get emails from Casey. There are web objects users out there. Yeah. Um, so if you would like to get in touch with Jake, you can you can talk to him on Twitter at J McMullen, J M A C M U W L I N. You can also talk to Ben Trengrove at B E N T R E N 
G-R-O-V-E. And they're both available at that on app.net as well. And I am at Jelly Bean Soup and Jelly on app.net. Thanks, guys, for listening. It's been amazing to talk to you guys again. It feels like so long. Speak to you next time. We'll Bye. see you then. Bye.